The following podcast is brought to you by the Tumbling Saber Powerful Friends community. Become a Powerful Friend today and get exclusive podcasts, early access podcasts, ad-free podcasts, and more. Visit patreon.com slash tumblingsaber and become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. everybody, welcome back to another episode of Worthy of Recognition for another month. I'm Kyle, and I am joined this month by one of the great powerful friends, someone who elevates every conversation we have, Dave Hackerson. How are you, sir? Domo, domo. Ma, Yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, thank you very much for graciously extending the invitation, and he <laughs> very... Nice introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I speak the truth, sir. I feel a little humbled. <laughs> no, I mean you get you you have done such a great job, you and Ian and also, I mean so many others. But you guys definitely over the last month or two, like every time we have a conversation, I'll get a, a, an alert from Patreon that there's a, there's a comment from Dave or from Ian, and I go and it's this great, amazing comment that really extends the discussion that we'd had on the podcast, and that that's what it's all about, man. It's the community yeah. that, that that we put together. And it's it's pulling in all these different viewpoints, and you really have left some jaw dropper comments, and that 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 is such a cool thing, man. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's a credit to your to you guys for uh, getting the the cogs of my head thinking. And so, yeah, I just because I usually listen to your stuff either when I'm like doing work around the house or while I'm running, and so it's really, especially when I'm running, it's just great distraction. I don't feel tired to just listen to what you guys say. And I guess by moving about, I get my brain stimulated more and I just, uh, it's just, it's a really good conversation to get me thinking. So I always happy to lend my two cents worth. Absolutely. Love it. Uh, so let's get it right into it here, man. Like you're over in Japan now. You've been in, in, living in Japan for a number of years, but you're originally from Illinois and St. Louis, the American Midwest. What brought yes. you into Star Wars? How did you get into the franchise? And as you w- moved across to Japan, what what kept your love for of of the galaxy far far away alive and well? Okay, so yeah, I was born in Joliet, Illinois, and all my my parents and all my uh, immediate family are from the northern Illinois area. And I mean, I my first memories my first really lucid memories as a child involved Star Wars. And uh, when I, like, when I was two or th- I think it was my third birthday, I, I especially remember it because of all the pictures that were taken, but my my grandmother made me an R2-D2 cake. And, and then my parents were both really, they really enjoyed the movies. And so growing up, those movies were always on TV at the house, but the one I really may have seen Empire Strikes Back first and then went back and saw uh, episode four. And I, I, I don't, I don't know though. I think it was a lot, a lot of it has to do with my parents having that on TV and then my mother and father getting me a lot of those original Kenner toys. Nice. And, and then I got some hand-me-downs from some cousins. Like my cousin Greg gave me 
uh, Tatooine Luke Skywalker, but he was headless, had no head, because <laughs> my cousin's dog had bitten the head off. So I had a headless Luke. I had a stormtrooper whose helmet had turned yellow because my cousin's dog had salivated on it so much. And But yeah, those were... I was thrilled to receive them from my cousins. And so I had those toys. Did you actually play with the headless Luke and just you made the best of it? Yeah, I did. I I love it. (laughs) I I had the headless Luke and a capeless Vader. And I would uh, and I had I had two versions of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Actually, there was one Obi-Wan who had very white hair and one Obi-Wan who had darker a darkish gray tinge to his hair i don't know if that was because they were like released at different times or if i just happened upon getting a a special mistake from a factory or something but i had two obi-wans and then my mother sent the upcs away to get the special anakin skywalker figure nice from Return of the Jedi, which I still I still have to this day. I have it here with me in Japan. That's a great. I brought figure. a lot of those toys with me. Ah, oh, it, it's I, I I love it. It's it's so so cool. And as much as I appreciate the Hayden Christensen reinsertion in the special editions of Return of the Jedi, I still lean towards the Sebastian Shaw. Yeah, there's something about like yeah, it's hard to when you, when you see that moment at the at the end at the campfire in uh, at at the Ewok village. It it it's almost hard for me to connect that Hayden is Luke's or that that you know that Anakin the young Anakin is Luke's dad when they're virtually the same age at that point. But when you see Sebastian Shaw, like oh yeah, that's easily Luke's father. He's the right age. It's yeah. Yep. It's a weird. It was yep. a weird choice, but I, I like you said, I, I get why why it was done. Yeah, and like, so those toys were a really big part of it. Plus the fact that my my parents, because I, I I I remember my mother and father saying that I think one of the first movies they went and saw when they started dating was the original Star Wars. And so, like, for them, then my mother's, yeah, because I was born in May of 81, so Empire came out exactly a year before I was born. But so all those movies were always just around the house. And so I I kept those toys, grew up, grew up with them. And then it was, I think, my sophomore year of high school. Basketball season just ended, and I got incredibly ill. It's like I had pushed my body really hard. I was doing practices six days a week and studying well, well, late into night every night after practice. And then I think just my body shut down after the season ended, and so I was like home sick two weeks. And this was ninety-seven. Yeah, ninety-seven. And so this was two years after the Power of the Force figures had come out. But I think 97 is when they were doing like Shadows of the Empire type stuff. 
And I remember going to the doctor and then the way home, my mom's like, well, let's stop at Walmart. And she's like, oh, I'll, I'll get you some, some Star Wars stuff. And I was like, oh, sweet. And so not anything else. Star Wars. Star Wars stuff. So yeah, <laughs> I got, I got, um, the Han Solo. For some reason, I really wanted the Han Solo with the carbonite case. So I got the Han Solo in carbonite, uh, the buffed up Darth Vader, the, the ridiculously roided out Luke from Return of the Jedi. Uh, Lan was like a Carl Weathers version of Lando. <laughs> like Apollo Creed had become Lando. And it's kind of fitting now that Carl Weathers is in The Mandalorian. But Those figures um, are just so good, man. And we're at the 25th <laughs> anniversary, I think, of the release of that yes. line. Holy yep. smokes, man. I remember seeing them way back in the day and going this is ridiculous but they are yeah. definitely a sign of the times of the of the 90s like the the extremeness of it all and just mm -hmm. everything amped up to 11 it was they were ridiculous but yeah, i look back I mean, at those figures now and i go oh i love these things yeah and i kept kept those and um two years ago when my wife and i and our youngest daughter were back visiting the states for my youngest brother's wedding, my mom was in the process of moving out of the house and she was going to move to an apartment because none of the kids are living there anymore. My parents had divorced many, many, many years before that. And so she didn't need the house. And I went through and she had kept all of my old Star Wars stuff in this old um, case that actually was my grandpa's case that was issued to him by the army in World War II. So it's kind of cool. I had that historic case from my grandpa that he used in World War II and it was housing all of my old Star Wars toys. And I I was like, told my wife, I was like, I got to take all this stuff back with us to Japan. And so I got it all, was able to fit it into our suitcases and um, brought it all back. But I mean, and then going fast forwarding to 1999, that was my last year of high school and probably one of my most favorite Star Wars memories. You, you probably re remember back in the day, you couldn't reserve tickets online. You actually had to call the theater and hope to get through to buy tickets in advance. And so I, I had to show up and get them. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> maybe, man, man, maybe we were lucky with our theater chain in uh, in the St. Louis area. But it was a week before the movie was released in the theaters, and so the advanced ticket sales started. And a friend of mine and and I, we got my car because you could, I'm sure, in Canada as well, North America, it's like once you get a driver's license, you can usually drive to school your last two years of high school. So I had a 1977 Ford Thunderbird, big ass car. Oh my God. I had a friend yeah. that had the same car. That thing was, you could live in that comfortably. You could live in it and <laughs> stuff hits you and the stuff that hits you gets damaged and the car is, your car is fine. And it was, it was, it was a beast. Oh, I, I missed it. Huge. I missed it dearly. Yeah, it was huge. 
And so we're driving back from school to his house and it starts pouring down rain. And just as it's pouring down rain, my windshield wipers stop working. And we're driving on back roads in Missouri. And it's like, all right, we got, we're on a mission. And he kept, he kept like quoting uh, John Belushi from Blues Brothers. He's like, we're on a mission from God. We have to get our Star Wars tickets. We can't pull over. And I'm like, all right, roll the windows down. <laughs> we're doing it Ace Ventura style. And I roll the windows down and I stick my head out and I'm driving like Ace Ventura on these back roads in Missouri, hell bent to get to my friend's house so we can call the theater and get our tickets to go see Phantom Menace. You're painting a hell of a picture here. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was incredible. It was incredible. And we made it safely to his house and we were able to get through and got our tickets. And so my last day of high school, I actually had my mother sign me out early so I could go see Phantom Menace. <laughs> so I didn't even finish my last day of high school because I wanted to go see Phantom Menace. Absolutely. To hell with this. You're out of there. Let's go. Priorities. Yeah. And uh, so I went and saw Phantom Menace and like it, 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 blew, it blew me away. I, I, I was just just in awe and at that time i mean and then after seeing it the first time i got a job at a movie theater that summer and so i i think i saw phantom menace like a total of 20 times because nice. i could see it for, i could see it for free and like i knew all the times so like i would time my breaks to all right i want to watch the pod race today so i'm going to take my break now and go watch the pod race and then go back to work and uh so, but in all the times I watched it, I just was always really fascinated about by Qui-Gon Jinn and the things he said, which at the time just where it was coming from, because it didn't sound very Christian to me. And I'm like, this has got to be Eastern. And so fast forward to college and i i got phantom menace on uh i got special like edition that came with the uh the, the little small concept art, art book, book and the, the and yeah, it, yeah the film cell or the yep, fil- yep. yeah the frame uh, yep that's what i got and do you, do you so remember I, what frame you got sorry to cut you off i always like to ask oh yes yes i got a frame of actually I have it here. Hold on a second. I just remember I do have it here. I believe it's dead Qui-Gon. Yes. It's uh, Qui-Gon laying prostrate after he has been stabbed by Darth Maul. That's what I got. I keep mine right at hand as well. And what I, the sequence I have, it's it's five different frames. And for me, it's, it's Qui-Gon explaining to Anakin about midi-chlorians. Ooh, that's that's a good one. So it's that's the whole your one. focus determines your reality type thing. Yep, yep. And uh, so it just from the very first time I saw Phantom Menace, I was really fascinated by Qui Gon. And my second year of university, and this, this is this will connect how I eventually ended up in Japan. My my university and a couple other universities in the states 
one university in the UK and one university in Auckland, New Zealand, all participated in this uh, international seminar that was held at this uh, vocational school in Western Tokyo. And it was completely funded by this Japanese entrepreneur and his foundation. So we didn't have to pay a single cent to, to participate in this. You had to be nominated by a professor at your school. And at that, now I think they only do two students, but at the time they would do two, two male, two female students. And so a professor of mine, because I majored in history and my, one of my history professors, he just really loved the things I wrote. And especially like that second year is when we I got really exposed to Asian history and Asian stuff. And that's when I, when I read that stuff, that's when I was like, oh, now I, now I know why Qui-Gon clicks so much for me because this, this makes sense. And so he nominated me, I did the interview and I got selected. And so then I got to come here to Japan for two weeks after my sophomore year of college ended. I, I couldn't speak any Japanese at all at the time or anything, but just fell in love with the country and just something about it really felt right to me. I couldn't explain it at the time, but I just was like, I have to come back here somehow. And that's when I first met my wife and started corresponding her with some other Japanese friends I made at that time. And so, yeah, I came back to the States, did my junior, senior year, uh, wrote a thesis in Japanese history. And then Jap Japanese, uh, one of my history professors said, you're going to, if you want to study Japanese more, you're going to need to learn Japanese. And I was like, okay, I'll move on from Spanish and start teaching myself Japanese and and during so my last no not my last year the uh junior yeah right at the end of the junior college it was when the Phantom Menace came out not famous Attack of the Clones came out and I remember going to see that and just being in I, mean, I was like wow just even better than the Phantom Menace and so that love of Star Wars just stayed stayed with me. And then I came to Japan at the end of 2003. And so yeah, now I've spent over a third of my life here. But just, yeah, that love of Star Wars stayed. And my wife had never seen the original trilogy or any of those movies. That's and a problem. So yeah, I, I rectified that problem. Um, Damn right you did. And I in 2004, when they brought out that really nice DVD set of the original trilogy, and I bought the Japanese version here, and I showed it to him. I was like, I was like, you have to watch this. This is, this is like the the if there would be like mythology in America, this is it. And and she like really really enjoyed it she was like wow i really like those names of luke and leia she's like so when we have kids let's name our kids luke and leia and i was like oh i was like i love star wars but i will get so much shit if i name my kids luke and leia i was like <laughs> but we did we did uh 
our oldest daughter's middle name is Leia. Nice. So, and she and she knows where it comes from. And she she's really proud of that. But for as much as I enjoyed the prequels when I saw them, and then I I saw Revenge of the Sith. Actually, I saw it Revenge of the Sith in the States first because I had to go back in May of 2005 to attend my brother's, one of my other, I, I'm the oldest of five kids. So I have two brothers and two sisters. And so my second youngest brother, I went to his high school graduation. And at, at that time, the Star Wars movies were not doing simultaneous release worldwide. So Japan wasn't going to get Revenge of the Sith until July of 2005. And I was like, I cannot wait for two months to see this movie. And so I was like, thank God my brother is graduating high school. So we got to go back to the States and I can see Revenge of the Sith. And I remember reading the interview with Kevin Smith, the director, and how he just was like, said it was... I think he said orgasmic or something. He just, he was like, oh, it was just, it was amazing. And yeah, we really, it, it blew me away. And so, I mean, 2005, I think was like that first real height of like my Star Wars fandom. And I was just anything, revenge, yeah, anything Revenge of the Sith I got, I was really into the uh, D's animated Clone Wars it was on Cartoon Network. I remember going to 7-Eleven here in Japan and buying the Vader effects saber, which I still have, still works 15 years later. And um, But then after 2005, I, I kind of I started hearing all these people really trashing the prequels. And then I started doubting myself like, are they really that good? Should I? Because it became cool for a while to like diss the prequels and just say they're crap. Not as good as the originals. Dialogue sucks. And, and so part of me, like deep down, I was like, I really enjoyed these movies. But then the more the more cinephile part of me was like, well, maybe they're not as good as like like a movie like Blade Runner or something. And like, was Lucas too distracted with his effects to make a good movie otherwise? Yeah. That yeah. Whole thing. Yep. And I, I kind of found myself getting sucked away with that. And I, uh, it wasn't until, oh, when was it? I think it was after our, our kid. So our daughter, she almost born in 2006. And, and when I showed them the movies, I showed him the original trilogy first. And then, but he wanted to watch prequels one time. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then I I put the prequels on for him. And then I sat there watching it with him. And I was like, you know what? I really do like these movies. They're a lot better than I, I haven't seen them in a long time. And they're really, really good. And then what really kind of just cemented my fandom is when we started seeing the Clone Wars on TV here. And I loved the original Jendi's Clone Wars so much that I was like, well, why did they need to make another Clone Wars? And so it took me a long time to get 
into the Clone Wars series. And they were showing Clone Wars episodes on one of the Japanese channels here. And my son turned on. He's like, oh, Dad, look, it's Star Wars. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's the new Clone Wars. It's not as good as the other one. He's like, no, I want to watch it. And I was like, okay. And I sat down with him, and I believe it was episode season one, episode five, Rookies. Yeah. Where, and then I sat there with him, and I was like, you know what? This is really good. This is really good. Who's this Captain Rex guy? This guy kicks ass. And he's so much cooler than Commander Cody. And <laughs> and like like Cody was like giving him crap about what you're gonna put up a droid helmet and do Roger Roger and you think they'll fall for it? And he's like, Yeah, why not? And I was like, That's that is like what Han Solo would have done or something. <laughs> I was like, This is good. I was like, okay, I know, let's watch this. And it just really grew on me after that. And to the point where now, if somebody asked me what my favorite Star Wars was, without hesitation, I would say the Clone Wars. Hands down. Very cool. And, and so, and with, and with watching all this stuff, and living in Japan, the longer I lived here, and being a student of history, and just always really... And my, my minor in college was philosophy, so no surprise that I would start reading up on the philosophical aspects of stuff. When I was watching uh, Phantom Menace with the Japanese dub and Japanese subtitles, and I was looking at how they were like translating some of the things that Qui-Gon Jinn said, I was like, that really sounds like something I've read in the Zen thing. And... In 2016, the temple behind our house, they have these like they have this like little uh, bullet. Sorry, this little bulletin board where they'll advertise like uh, some type of uh, zazenkai, which is like a Zen meditation session at some big famous temple, or um, they'll put some like a lot of these temples have like these rotating phrases, like words of wisdom or something. And just, I was always like walking around in the temple because it's very peaceful. And the bulletin board had this thing that said, Zen, Imoi Kiru, which means Zen, live in the now. And we had like watched, I think we had watched Phantom Menace like two days before that. And I was like, oh my God, that's like, that's not Qui-Gon Jinn. He just, that's Qui-Gon Jinn's words right here. Yeah, Qui-Gon wrote that. This is Qui-Gon stuff. And so I was telling my wife, she's like, she's like, oh, well, I guess, I guess I could see that. She's like, you know, if you, if you think there's that connection, you should, why don't you write about that? And I was like, hmm, okay. And I thought about it. And then like, sounds like a lot of work, but okay. And then a year later, like, I, I was like, talking about something she's like you should yeah, she's she was seeing me interact with some some of these other star wars podcast stuff and she's like you know why don't you start your own blog in japanese and english and write about s stuff like that and so that's where i mean she's not a huge star wars fan but she knows that i 
know my Japanese history and I know Star Wars stuff. And she's like, you could do something unique with that. So I think she was hoping that I could like start generating revenue or something from this <laughs> blog. <laughs> but, uh, but I was like, yeah, why not? And so I started doing it. And I mean, it is a lot of work. And that's why like, I don't crank out a ton of stuff because I always write it in Japanese first and then translate what I wrote in Japanese to English. <laughs> but, um, and I, I don't do, do it exclusively with Star Wars, but that's where now I'm just, anytime I'm watching Star Wars stuff, have my life experiences here and language and and then when I started reading about Lucas being really inspired by Kurosawa films and stuff, I I can bring that. I, I feel like I almost have an obligation to kind of highlight that stuff that people outside of this element would maybe pick up on because that's just not what they're exposed to. And the same goes for like... Uh, Lord of the Rings stuff. I remember explaining to a Japanese friend all the symbolism in that, which the average Japanese person probably wouldn't get because they're not familiar with Christianity to the level that, say, a person in the U.S. or Canada would be. So sorry if that was a very long, drawn-out answer to your, <laughs> to uh, my window in the Star Wars and how I connected to Japan. But yeah, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. <laughs> You know we'd like long, long and drawn out here. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that that's that's my whole life, how I got in Star Wars and how it got me to this point. Yeah, that I, that's it's really cool because it's I like hearing how the Clone Wars, the animated series, both of them, the the Tartakovsky and uh, the, the the later you know, air quotes proper series was mm. really the thing that that cemented you into the fandom like there's always the, the movies are always there yeah. it's usually the movies that that have pulled people in it's and i guess that it, that is true for you but it was i like that it was the series the weekly series that was the thing that mm-hmm. hooked you and has now like ensnared you into this thing and to the point where like you love the clones and you love what they oh, bring yes. to the saga and the individuality despite their the way they were bred and educated that they still have this humanity and this whole uh, philosophy to them. And it's, yeah, it's, it's rubbed off yeah. on me to the point where I really like the clones a lot more than, than I at any other point in my life. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. My, I, I feel I need to be a clone evangelist and spread the love because I, and this, this may be part of the sentimentality I've developed living here there's um it's one of my favorite japanese words um it's uh, the word is hakanai it's very it's very very hard to translate this word because it's it's not you can't do a straight translation of it and it's got this very intuitive feel to it but it it's this um sense of fleeting existence and almost transience 
which I feel is very appro very apropos for the for the clones because their existence is much more fleeting than the average person in the galaxy at the time because they were given those they, they had the accelerated development so their lifespan is already been cut in half and so and then multiply that by the fact that they're sent into battle and so I mean you think of a person who has lived a human life of only 10 years but their body is that of somebody who's 20 or they, maybe they're they've lived 15 years but they got the body of a 30 year old and they could die in battle and so it's this very precarious sense of existence and that's why i really like that word hakanai and i feel it's a very fitting description of the clones and so when i when i see them i i I almost feel like they're the embodiment of one of these Japanese concepts and words that I really, really liked. And so that's, what, that's one of the many reasons they really struck, strike a chord with me. Awesome. Uh, okay, cool. Let's, that's a great story, Dave. I love, I love it, but it's time to get into your Mount Rushmore of Star Wars, the four faces and names of the people that really shaped your experience. Uh, so it, I don't know if this is, did you put this list in order or is this just four names shot at the wall and, we're going to hit them one at a time. They're in chronological order, actually. Cool. All right, hit us. Uh, well, I, I kind of already spoke about this earlier, but the first one would be my mother. Because she was the one who was all, always the one who really encouraged me to have fun with this and got me the toys and just i think maybe maybe it's because i'm the oldest and so the oldest gets special attention that later siblings might not have gotten and so that's why i i don't know it's just we i, I don't understand why my parents felt that as a kid i would be able to understand this stuff and maybe it's what is always informed a lot of my artistic sensibilities but um yeah she was like kind of the, the gateway and so that's why i have to include her because without her influence without her introducing this to me i would have never taken my steps into a larger world to quote obi-wan so that yeah. would be the first if if i were doing i mean my parents obviously got me into star wars too so that they, they have their place in my in my journey as well but if i were to do like my worthy of recognition of of like baseball my mom would be first on that list she's it wasn't my dad that got me into ball it was my mom and she was a huge at montreal expos fan she played ball as a kid and she's the person responsible so yeah god bless moms god bless them god bless them so number two with i mean it was really hard to do four but number two would be John Williams. Any composer who has more perfectly created a musical landscape that is inseparable from the visual medium that is meant to complement. And I, I feel like it's a disservice to use the word complement 
when talking about Williams music and Star Wars, because uh, as I said, I, I think they're, they're intertwined. You cannot separate them. No, you could take the dialogue out. You could take the sound effects out, but you could still just do like they did in the silent films in the past. And I think George Lucas even said this. He said, I wanted to make movies that could be like silent films with the music. And it works. It works for sure. And I mean, growing up and this, this is again, this will connect to my mother because my mother is very musically inclined. Both my parents were, my mother could play piano and she sang, my father sang and I, um, I remember listening to the Star Wars music growing up. My mom also had the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, LP. Actually, as a kid, I remember like being taught how to work the LP player. And it was just something cool about taking that big thing out of the sleeve, setting it on a record player, putting the needle down, watching it. And I remember doing that with Raiders of the Lost Ark and with Star Wars music, but yeah, some of the earliest music I remember is all from Empire Strikes Back. The uh, and more so than the Imperial March, it's Yoda's theme oh. that oh, is always. I don't. I don't know how to describe it. It's just. It's um. If I had to pick a song that I want played at my funeral, it would be that. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's, 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 um, it has its somber moments, but somber in that it's, um, meant to evoke the image of somebody who's lived a very long life, who's seen a lot of things, who's waxed philosophically on them and trying to glean whatever nuggets of information and knowledge and wisdom he can from them and then pass them on as he says to Luke in The Last Jedi, he's like, we need to pass on what we learned, including our failures. And, um, and just all of that, again, is just the genius of John Williams to be able to create something that... I just... Well, it, it's, that, it's equal parts yeah. wisdom and sorrowful, but playful. Yes. And, and whimsical. It's It's all of those things in that one track. And it's, mm -hmm. I, I always struggle to pick out my one favorite star Wars track. I can't, I, I can't do it, but Yoda's theme is always at the tip of my tongue along with Leia's theme. Mm. That stuff is always right there. One of the first things that will get mentioned, but it's impossible to commit to one, but Yoda's theme is just unbelievable stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's just, I think the older I get and the more I listen to it, the more I love it. And it, it just, yeah, it's, and when it's finished, you don't feel sad. You, you, you feel uplifted. And that's why, like I said, it'd be the piece I'd want played in my family because it's the uplifting testament of somebody who lived their life to the fullest and did what did their part to make the next generation better. 
Yeah, it's well said, man. So, and I, I hope at the end of my days, whenever that may be, that I could have done something similar. Well, Yoda, that, Yoda, but... Yoda set quite the bar, but it's you know it, it is definitely something to to aspire to. That's there's no question about that. Yep. So that would that'd be my second. My third, we've already talked about him earlier. Is uh, character wise, be Qui Gon Jinn. I can't and... imagine why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just. Where do I begin with Qui-Gon Jinn? First, his portrayal by Liam Neeson. I, I tried to imagine other actors who could have done Qui-Gon Jinn. And the only one that I think could have done the character as much justice as Liam Neeson and that's because he has a very, I wouldn't say imposing, but a very commanding presence is uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. I think Daniel Day-Lewis would have been a really good uh, Qui-Gon Jinn. Yeah, he could have done it. But um, what, what, in, in, in after, I mean, seeing... If just the first time I saw it, I was like, he's just a really cool guy. And I'm like, yes, another person with a green lightsaber, because I always like green lightsabers. But what always fascinated me from the beginning was like, this guy was not afraid to just flat out tell the Jedi Council and people like Yoda, you're wrong. <laughs> and I mean, th that really blew me away the first time I saw it, because... You've seen Empire Strikes Back, and Yoda's this guy who's been training Jedi for hundreds and hundreds of years. And here is Qui-Gon Jinn. He goes and he tells Yoda, look, I found the Chosen One. And Yoda's like, we're not going to train him. And then he just is like, you guys were wrong. <laughs> and and then when Obi-Wan is like trying to tell him, that, hey, if you listen to Jedi Council more, maybe you would be out there. And he's like, Obi-Wan, you need to think about not what they want, but you need to think about what the Force wants. And at the time, I didn't quite get what Lucas was trying to say with Qui-Gon, but as I got older, and I guess maybe this is part of the cynicism you develop when you go out and live in the world and you see how organizations work, how organized religions work, how well, even even not organized religions, but just like how how churches or any type of religious sect can work, and where people don't think through it themselves, they take the principles that are in whatever scripture they ascribe to, and rather than thinking to interpret it and question it for themselves, they seek to follow whatever mandate is handed down by so-called elders, experts, what have you. And that's what Obi-Wan is doing. He's Obi-Wan's being the company man, like the, the good being, soldier. Yep. And Qui-Gon is telling him, no, no, that's not what you do. This, you need to think it 
out for yourself, you need to ask the right questions. And, and it was later that I really started realizing yeah, that I kind of saw a bit of myself reflected in Qui-Gon because I remember growing up and my, my family was um, fairly religious and we would go to church and stuff. And I remember I would be reading the Bible and then hearing like pastors saying, oh, you can't drink alcohol because that's what the world does. And I was like, but wasn't Jesus's first miracle to transform water into wine at a wedding? And he's like, yes. And I was like, well, why would he do that if they had not drank the wine dry? It means a lot of people are drinking. And they're like, yes. And I was like, so why is it bad for us to drink alcohol now? But Jesus drank alcohol and made alcohol out of water so people could keep drinking at a wedding probably with some people being drunk and i was told to i remember this very vividly that the uh, the the pastor in that sunday school session told me to hold my tongue and stop saying blasphemy stupid blasphemy and i was like i'm not being blasphemous i'm just asking very serious questions it's like i'm seeing a double standard here why is it bad for us to do it now but they did it at that time and he's like well that's because water wasn't safe to drink then and so they drank alcohol and i was like well, how <laughs> i was like how did they know that they didn't know about microorganisms they didn't know about germs it's like you can't give me that i was like i want you to explain to me why this is not a double standard and so when I saw Qui-Gon doing that, I was like, oh, now I know why I like him because he was calling out the double standard. He's calling out the dogma. He's like, you don't accept it just because that's what you're told. You have to think about it. And if you find that it's not sitting right with you, explore, ask more questions, get to the bottom of it. And that's what he he did and why he was able to unlock the secret of eternal life, no other Jedi had. And and one the Age of the Republic comics, I really liked those short snippets and how he uh, went to this one, I can't remember what planet he went to, but he goes in and he's like confronted by this like dark side presence, but then he's able to overcome it. And then he has this really good conversation about the force with Yoda and about being able to bend with things, not being so rigid. And I was like, that's really, that's great because that's him taking a shot at Yoda without shot with, without sounding rude. And Yoda does, maybe Yoda will catch it. Maybe Yoda doesn't catch it, but it's a really good way of like implying to Yoda that, you know, I think the Jedi council is being a little bit too rigid here. And if they weren't as rigid, and could be a little bit more, I don't know, open-minded might be too simple of a way to describe it, but... A little more fluid. Malleable. A little more fluid. Yeah, malleable. Take a step back. And it's like something I wrote in response to you and Nate talking about one time and how they need to realize that the force isn't always to be held to this side. But 
if you push it too far in the other direction, you're going to have to push it way to the other direction, push that pendulum all the way to the opposite extreme. And eventually, once all of that momentum dissipates, it'll finally come to rest again. But so, yeah, and Qui-Gon was always very, um, again, this is living in Japan and getting exposure to this, um, not just Zen, but this um, concept of everything being in present tense. And you're concentrating on the moment. And there's no past, there's no future, it's just the now. And it's these, this continuous string of moments that are connecting. And we hear Qui-Gon say, the, what, the very first dialogue of Jedi we hear in the prequels, Qui-Gon's telling Obi-Wan, don't be thinking about something so far off in the future. Keep your mind here and now where it belongs. And he later tells Anakin the same thing. He's like, concentrate on a moment. That's your instincts. And so those things just, I like thinking about all that stuff. I like to call Qui-Gon Jin Qui-Gon Zen because he's just... He's just very in the now, always asking the right questions, and he's a very good example of how to be a good person, but not blindly follow. And in the way the world is going these days, that is a very important lesson. And it's critical thinking. Critical thinking that is in very short supply these days. And I've had times where I tried to say things out of critical thinking base, and I've been flat out rejected or yelled or received a very harsh reaction from people who are not critically thinking and just blindly telling what Fox News or whatever type of media tells them. And it's very frustrating, but I, I mean, that's, again, that's one reason why I like Qui-Gon because he's very in the moment, but he's always asking the right questions. He's not ascribing to any one set of dog. And he's was willing, and this is why I, I, I feel that we're kind of robbed of Maybe Lucas regretted himself, but I don't. I wish that he hadn't been killed off so early because I think it would have been very interesting to see how a person like Qui Gon had reacted to the developments in the Clone Wars. But yeah, that yeah. that would be Qui Gon for would, sure. I think he was he was like the guy who, like, as soon as he gets on screen in Phantom Menace he makes us feel uncomfortable. He's mm -hmm. questioning Yoda. He's going against the things that we knew about the Jedi from, from the original movies. And you're like, wait a sec. And, and material leading up to Phantom Menace did paint him as a bit of a rogue. So I think in that respect, we're supposed to already mm -hmm. mistrust him a little bit. Is this guy out for himself? Like what's his deal? But now like we're here, we are in 2020 still unpacking Qui-Gon 
and and you know i think we've we've come to a much better understanding of him as a fandom mm. in the last few years but like you look at a book like master and apprentice from claudia gray that continued to uh unpack the great things that he had uh, that he had learned about the force and the way he thought that I don't do things because the order the council tells me to. I do things to serve the light. I do it because it's the light. I do it because this is the right thing to do. And whereas the Jedi Order, and you think of that great Palpatine quote from Revenge of the Sith about everybody who has power fears to lose it, including the Jedi. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the Jedi 100%. maybe didn't, um, weren't so outward about it, but you could tell that they were protected and ensconced in their beautiful little temple on Coruscant and they enjoyed comfort and they enjoyed, I mean, albeit, you know, they're, they're caught in a war, but they had the, these great digs on Coruscant and they had, mm-hmm. had it pretty good. And yeah. so they're, they're going to do what they have to do to preserve that. Whereas Qui-Gon was telling Anakin, it's a hard life to be a Jedi. And that's, but that's the path that Qui-Gon chose for himself in serving the Force and not just the Council. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the great thing about Qui-Gon. And I think that's a, that aspect of Qui-Gon is something that we're all sort of looking for, especially when it comes to the High Republic that's coming out next year. We're going to, we're ho- I think, at least personally, I'm hoping to see a lot more of Qui-Gon in those Jedi. Yes, yes, that's what I... What I what I hope to see is that they show that the Jedi Order wasn't as dogmatic, and maybe use the Age of Republic to show how events in the galaxy caused the Jedi to move in a direction where they became more rigid, more structured, mm-hmm. because yep. they felt that that was what they needed to, like basically like a what do they call it business continuity planning. <laughs> so. Yeah. They, they like something, some grave event happens and they react in the complete opposite way. Rather than retaining some sense of flexibility, they decide we got to develop some manual approach to make sure we are completely in control of the situation. And yeah, like some, some authoritative power convinces the Jedi Council that there's there's a pragmatic approach to solving this problem that we have. We need you guys to do this for us. The Jedi will comply and eventually that that pulls them closer in in league with the Republic and you know down the gutter they go. Yep. yep. I mean it's kind of like how well like Christianity when it when it emerged and this this also happened with some of the Buddhist sects here in Japan but when Christianity emerged it wasn't affiliated with anything. And it was this like outside influence that was viewed with suspicion by Rome, but also there's a lot of support for it. And then it was Constantine who decided to make it an official religion. And once it became an official religion, then it took on all the trappings of an organization. And so it became less about the individual and more about this collective organization that had rules and you had to abide by those rules. And it took somebody like Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation to to strip those away and try to make a new version. And in some sense, I think that maybe Qui-Gon would have been kind of like that Reformation type of figure had he been able to continue on. But 
his life was cut short. And so the reformation that the Jedi needed never came about. And eventually they were almost completely wiped out with Order 66. And Luke fumbled up his attempt to create a new Jedi Order. But his, this is just my opinion, but he, he was too intent on recreating the Jedi Order as it was rather as it was in right before the fall of the Republic because that's what Obi-Wan knew. That's what Yoda knew. But Luke didn't know, from what we know, Luke didn't know of Qui-Gon. He didn't know what Qui-Gon stood for, didn't know what Qui-Gon had done. I think had Luke known more about Qui-Gon, he may have taken more of a Qui-Gon approach. It's That's something... interesting you say that. It's something I've been thinking about myself lately is that, yeah, Luke's order, it fell. And why is that? Is it solely because of Palpatine, Snoke, Kylo manipulations, all that stuff? Or was he just building upon the same flawed foundations? And we know that Luke knew, at least in The Last Jedi, Luke talks about how the Jedi were kind of a messed up group anyway. But when we when did he learn that? Did he only learn that after his own academy fell apart or did he learn that in the aftermath of return of the jedi but forged ahead anyway with a flawed plan there there's so much to learn about luke and what he tried to do and Mm. i i I hope we get to hear it one day yeah that's i mean i've been thinking about that as well and based on and this is just just as purely my own speculation based on what he says in the last jedi i think he learned that after excuse my French, the shit hit the fan with Kylo and his academy. And he did some some hard soul searching and some more looking as to why that happened. And then he realized, yeah, I guess I had it wrong and I was basically just trying to do recreate the order exactly as it was before the Republic fell. And that was a flawed order. And one great example of how the order was flawed that I really appreciated. And I know, and this is in the season seven of the Clone Wars. And I know a lot of people dismissed the middle set of episodes with the Martez sisters. It's like, Oh, that's just filler. We can talk about them, Dave. I love those episodes because they show the, how the average person in the galaxy viewed the Jedi and that whole backstory with the Martez sisters and how their parents died, where they tie in an event from the clone wars where the Jedi and clones are chasing after Jill the hut. And this craft crashes into their parents' apartment and the parents are killed by accident. And then the Jedi come up to them and just, I mean, with no sense of empathy whatsoever. Oh, may the force be with you. And how that, like, really, especially the older of the two sisters, Raz, was just like, she's like, what? WTF? What is that supposed to make? That's not bringing my parents back. That's what, how are we supposed to live? We have no parents. And who's going to take care of us? Our parents are dead because of you guys. 
and you're telling me, oh, may the force be with you. Well, that's not going to put food on my table. That's not going to help my sister and I live. And yeah, it the, was the, the Jedi had this whole thing of, well, you know, it, it's the will of the force and this is the way it is and blah, 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 blah. But you, maybe you guys learned how to live without attachments, but we didn't. And no. you just cut them all. And they, yeah. And they lost all their attachments. They lost all their any sense of base. And I thought that was. It's, people will say that's filler, but I say that's context. Context as to why you can see how the greater galaxy at large and the greater public at large would go along with what Palpatine says about mm-hmm. the Jedi were intent on taking power. The Jedi were only concerned about themselves. And here you have a visceral example of that. You have two sisters whose parents died in an accident that was caused by the Jedi and the Jedi didn't do anything to look after them, provide for them, didn't even show any real empathy for their plight. And so they're going to be like, yeah, the Jedi are a bunch of jerks. We don't need them. Good. We're glad they're gone. Glad they're gone. That that context was so important. And look, people did call that that arc filler. I completely disagree. I will concede that maybe it could have been an episode shorter. Yeah. They could have combined combined the last two episodes into one. But yeah, that story was was mm. crucial to me, and it uh, beyond what it did to reset Ahsoka and reintroduce us to what she's doing and how she's coping and and getting by in a galaxy where she can't outwardly use her force abilities and how it was going to suck her back in. But yeah, anyway, I don't want to fall back into that rabbit hole. No. But it's uh, I thought that was a very worthwhile story. It's it's a worthwhile story because bringing it back to Qui Gon, I think Qui Gon was aware of that. I think he could tell that the Jedi were really disconnected. And that's why you see him like have, have such a really nice rapport with Anakin's mother, Shmi, and also like not dismissing somebody like Jar Jar. He's, he's just very he realizes that empathy is important and people need to show that they're being empathetic. And that is something in their, their final days, the Jedi were sorely lacking in. And the only Jedi that I felt in watching the Clone Wars who really showed any sense of real empathy were Ahsoka, Anakin, and Plo Koon. And, Funny that. And and also, I mean, you and you look at whose clones turned out the best. Anakin, Ahsoka, and Plo Koon's clones. Yeah, <laughs> turned out the best. And so, yeah, that's not a mistake. Not and, a mistake. And, and you're the guy that pointed that out to us for sure. Like I didn't quite connect that dot and. Yeah, the, the the mindset and the actions of the Jedi commanders rubbed off on the clones, for sure. Most definitely. And I guess I'll go on to my fourth then, and that would be Captain Rex. I mean, first time I saw that, 
uh, rookies episode, episode five, season one, with my son. I remember it very well because I was just I was so excited he was in the Star Wars. But then that was like something that both him and I together were watching for the first time for both of us because up until then it had been me showing him the movies that I had grown up with and that I knew. But then we see this character like Captain Rex and then my son was just like, oh, these clones are so cool. Their armor, their, their guns and all that stuff. And I was like really curious. I was like, so this is this clone guy who served under Anakin. And the longer I watched Clone Wars, the more Rex really came to command my respect because, I mean, here's a guy who straight up tells Ahsoka, yeah, I don't care that you can use the Force and stuff. You don't have any experience yet. And so I'm not going to be kowtowing to you just because technically you rank above me in the social hierarchy because you're a Jedi and I'd be some grunt who is created in a factory, but I've been on the battlefield. You haven't yet. So until you get that experience, I'm not going to give you any respect. And like to Ahsoka's credit, she doesn't take offense to it. And she's like, okay, I got to prove myself. But throughout the entire Clone Wars, I mean, Rex becomes the embodiment episode two where the like they think for themselves they adapt they can learn and develop which droids can't droids can only do what they're programmed and they're like the clones are programmed to an extent but they have also been given the ability to learn and think on their own and we see rex do that time and time again and he takes on Anakin's more spontaneous streaks, his ability to think on the fly and do things. And where Rex really comes into his own, and this is for me is probably some of the best Star Wars ever made, is the Umbara arc in season four. Amen. And I mean... I don't know how many people made the connection, but they're very. There's a lot of apocalypse now undertones in that whole series. I mean, the very first part where you see them attacking and then Anakin calls an airstrike and you see the whole ridge go up in flames, that is like taken straight out of the very first shot of apocalypse now, where there's the helicopters flying over the jungle and all of a sudden, boom, the napalm goes and it goes up in flames. And the book Apocalypse Now was originally written by a guy named Joseph Conrad. That was his pen name because he's a Polish immigrant to England, whatever. Anyway, it's about this trip up into the Congo. The movie Apocalypse Now transplants that to Vietnam. But in the Embarg, we see Rex and the clones confronted with a Jedi who has gone mad. He's been thrust into this war, just like the main characters in Apocalypse Now. And um, in Apocalypse Now, you have Colonel Kurtz, who is this just elite soldier, was 
was going to do great things, and then he lost it. And you have Krell, who is this Jedi who's supposed to be able to do great things, and he loses it. And the whole environment on Barra is dark, and Rex and the clones are continuously, like, they're on this journey, they're marching, and you never know where they're marching towards. And they're in this darkness, and Rex is really coming to grapple with. And he 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 does what Qui-Gon and what Anakin would do, and that he realizes with a lot of help from fives that you can't always follow orders just because they're orders. You have when they're wrong and when they're not supposed to be when they're to the detriment of you, your men, and to the point where doing them would kill them needlessly, you need to disobey them and stand up to whoever is giving you those orders. And Rex does that. And he he shows that clones don't just do what they're told. And we see this really great example of Krell isn't synonymous with all the Jedi, but I feel he's representative of what many Jedi felt about the clones. He's just a very extreme characterization of that. And you need that sometimes within fiction to create more sense of conflict in a narrative. And it works really well. In the Simbar arc. And so Rex is confronted with that. And so we see, like, it's kind of like Order 66 in reverse, where the clones aren't ordered to kill the Jedi, but they choose to kill the Jedi because the Jedi is evil. This is one Jedi that needed to be put down. He's one Jedi that needed to be put down. And so they're doing order 66 because it's the right thing to do yeah not because <laughs> it's, amazing, it's wrong it? it's like turning the whole thing on its head and his whole and I, I i think i quoted it in this this blog post i did about the clones and another set of japanese words that are really appropriate for their their state but um where he tells i believe it's dogma He's like, we're not droids. We we can think for ourselves and make our own decisions. And how he's always reminding Krill that he's not a number. He's a person and he has a name. He has identity. And he's like affirming all these things. He's like, we're people. We may look alike, but we have individual personalities. We are sentient beings and you need to treat us with value you need to value us as life not as cannon fodder and after seeing that arc i was like how could anybody not have this guy in like their top five star wars characters i I would place him at number two for me because he's maybe just all that and so when we see in 
season seven of Clone Wars, just how tight he is with Anakin and with Ahsoka. And then when Order 66 comes, that even though he still has the chip, because of what he knew with what happened with Fives, and because he has such a strong, he's he's developed such a strong individualistic personality. I was brought to tears seeing him. His his guns are shaking, and you can tell he is fighting that order with all of his might. Yeah, trying not to do it, and buying Ahsoka the time that she needed to realize something is up, and to 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 figure it out and. So he's like, it's really ironic because he's the epitome of what is good about the clones. He's also the epitome of their tragedy in that they were created for a purpose. They were created to be, they're, they're basically just these mass consumable goods created to be, to serve a purpose and to be discarded. But they they're more human than the human the real human stormtroopers that replace them yeah and so i mean and there's just and if you take just not rex but the clones in general there's so many great ethical questions you can areas you can explore like okay so these are this is life that was created synthetically but it's still life yoda says that in the very very first episode of season one clone wars they're in the cave and he looks at the clones and he this is another moment that just made me fall in love with the clones where he tells them take off your helmets and they're like why we all have the same face he's like no you don't you each have individual presence in the force and i was like that but blew me away the first time i heard it he's like because they are life, they are animated organics. The living force is within them, and the living force has given each of them their own unique stamp. And Yoda knew it, and he wanted to see it. And then he gets them to say, you know what? You're different than droids because you can think. And he tells them, you have everything you need. And this is something we hear repeatedly in Star Wars. We have everything we need. And he gets them to realize that. And Plo Koon. Plo Koon realized that too. There's that other great episode, I think, from season one in the Malevolence arc where they're out kind of adrift among the the, the wreckage of their their Mm -hmm. cruiser and they think they're going to die. And Plo Koon is there reassuring them that your people, I see you guys, that you're all unique individuals and you're all lights in the force. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. That kind of... The Jedi was maybe too, it was too little too late for the Jedi at that point, but just that little spark that was able to filter down through the clones, through Rex, and then it, it's it's that little spark that survives, which which makes doing the right thing so important because that will that will survive. I think that's the lesson. The, those good lessons, uh, you know, the, the right way of thinking will will survive even even if it's just a little trickle down. Yep, and we see it taken to fruition again in rebels where kanan and ezra and rebels crew find find them because ahsoka directs them to them and 
Rex says, yeah, I'm going to help you because it's the right thing to do. And he's like, I was made for this purpose, but I still can do right. And he does that to the end. And so I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if they're going to have him be in the Mandalorian because let's see, trying to do the conversions of clone age. So Rex by rebels, he would have been, this would have been 15 years after the end of the clone wars. So he was about what? 12 years 12, 13 years old, the Clone Wars, so he would be 37, but in human years, that puts him at 74. He's getting up there. So, and the Mandalorian is what? So, okay, so Rebels is what? Four years before episode four? Two years before episode four. So, because when we see Luke in the Twin Sons episode, Luke is still early adolescent. So yeah, like yeah. Rex, it's hard Rex to know for like sure. His, yeah, Rex would be like human body age wise. He'd be like in his eighties in the Mandalorian. I don't know if can can handle the rigors of hyperspace and stuff at that age. But. It's it's so hard to know, right? Like, could they write themselves into a little space where at a certain point the the aging process kind of slows down, and so you know by the time that Rex hits middle age, like when we catch up to him in rebels and he is that age where you know, his, his body has been around for whatever it is, 30 years, but he's now into his sixties aging yeah. wise. Has it leveled off by that point? And now he's just going to age like any regular person. That's, that's a way to get kind of get more story out of the character. If you want to write that kind of wrinkle into the aging process, or you can just have yeah. him go right off a cliff. Like he's just going to keep aging quickly and die. I mean, they could do that. I mean, they could say that the the Kaminoans never intended for clones to live past a certain age because they felt they'd be killed in battle. <laughs> but once they got to a certain age, maybe... I mean, that's... They can do whatever they want in Star Wars because they don't have to be beholden to the laws of our universe. So we'll, 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 we'll accept it. I mean, explosions happen in space and we see fire, which theoretically shouldn't be possible but we're okay with it because it's space fantasy space opera so and you know there there is an appetite for more clones and for rex in particular so i i can't see them ignoring that completely and even if he shows up in the mandalorian in some capacity i have to imagine that there's more to tell with rex especially you know when you look at the end of season seven of clone wars you know, uh, presumably he meets up again with Wolf and and Gregor, and they go off to that planet together. But there's a, there's another story to tell with Ahsoka, and if he shows up in the the Bad Batch series, there's more to tell there with Rex. At some point, we will have gotten enough Rex that they'll do away with the character. But I don't think we're there yet. I think there's still uh, there's still there's still things left to to do with Rex. You know, the decommissioning of the clones had. Does, does that we see that through Rex's eyes? That is something. I mean, th there's they could do they could draw on so many things from real history here. Like, look at the end of World War II, and you had all these U.S. Armed Forces guys that are mustered out, and the U.S. passed the GI Bill. I I don't know if Canada did something similar to that. I mean, Canada was in World War II much longer than U.S. because all the Commonwealth nations 
good yeah. old Britain pull, pulls you into everything. So you guys, the Kiwis and Aussies and the South Africans were all fighting in Europe and everywhere else in the world before we were. But at the end of World War II, we had all these guys are decommissioned. And then the U.S. government had to figure out a way to reintegrate these guys into society. And so the GI Bill is one way of doing that. You get these guys university education kind of as a way to repay them for the service they did to the U.S. Because at the time, not every, very few people went to college. And I mean, would the empire do something like that for the clones? I don't know. I don't see the em empire being as uh, benevolent <laughs> Nope. <laughs> as the U.S. government was. I mean, granted, it was the Cold War, and so we can't say the U.S. government was completely benevolent because it was a giant chessboard at the time, and we were supporting people. We probably shouldn't support it simply out of spite of the Soviet Union. That's neither here nor there. Um, but, I mean, that's one area they could explore. Something that I've had rolling around in my own headcanon for a long time, ever since the idea came up of the uh, old bearded guy. I would, I would love to see. I don't know if they'll ever make it. I don't know if anybody's thought of it. But if that commando was Rex, Luke comes back from the Death Star... He burns Darth Vader and then he goes to the celebration and the Rex comes up to him and he goes and calls him General Skywalker just as he did with Anakin. He goes, I knew your father. Sit down, son. I want to tell you about him. And you have like this little campfire scene where Rex just starts telling Luke stories about what he saw Anakin do in the in the Clone Wars and just just saying to Luke, your dad was just amazing. And I want you to know that this is this is the guy that I loved and who had my respect and I see a lot of him and you. And so if they made something like that I would be one of the happiest Star Wars fans around, but I don't know if they'll do something as cammy as that. But that's just something that I've had in my head canon for a long time. It seems like a very obvious yet relevant dot to connect. Like to have Rex meet the son of, of General Skywalker. There's there. You got to imagine that that story gets told. Even I've, I've pounded this drum relentlessly over the years. Ahsoka meeting Luke. Yes. Maybe put put it make it a make it a three-way party. I don't know, do something, but put Rex and Ahsoka in the same place with Luke and have those three sit around the campfire and talk it out. That seems like way too big of an opportunity to let pass by. Yeah, it, I mean it's so obvious and to to date we've seen nobody come near to touching them. And I don't know why. I mean, and you you bring Leia into it as well because Leia is Luke's twin, and like you could you could because she's a woman, you could have Ahsoka tell tell her about Padme. Like, oh yeah, I did a lot of stuff with Padme. This is what I knew of your mother, and she was always and, really and good. Not for me. nothing, but Ahsoka was the first fulcrum, right? Yep. Going Ahsoka's back to the Ahsoka novel, 
she meets mm-hmm. up with Bail Organa. <laughs> There's, it's all there waiting for them to scoop this story up and like melt us all. Mm, yep. And that's why, I mean, the more I think about it, the more that Rex is that really great bridge to from the old Republic to the new Republic through the from the old Republic through the rebellion to the new Republic. He knew Luke and Leia's parents served under him. Soka was especially close with Padme. I mean, freaking Padme was her lawyer at her trial. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, I mean, I mean that, that, that alone, I mean, can you imagine Ahsoka talking to Leia? It's like your mother was, your mother and your father were the only two people who stood up for me in the whole freaking galaxy. I have, I have good old Grand Marsh Tarkin, who you know pretty well, Leia, who was torturing you on the Death Star. He wanted to freaking kill me and have me executed. And your mother and your father, the only two people who vouched for my innocence, even Mr. Obi-Wan Kenobi wasn't going to go along with it. But your mother and father vouched for my innocence. And, and Rex would be like, yep, I know, because Anakin was with me and we were trying to hunt her down, trying to find Ahsoka. And he and I were both like, nobody touch her. Don't kill her. Don't kill her. And it's it's really fascinating stuff because we also know that um, Leia eventually named her child after Ben Kenobi. <laughs> yet, yet he wasn't completely uh, he, he didn't do quite right by Ahsoka. And yeah. so you could always have that if you want to have it even a little bit contentious between Leia and Ahsoka, where Ahsoka could say, listen, I knew your dad. He was a good person. Give him a chance. He's gone. Obviously, Anakin's dead by this point. But try to try to make uh, come to grips with this being there wasn't Anakin Skywalker, and Leia could just shut that out and say, no, he was a monster. And so you can have those two kind of butt heads a little bit if you wanted to. There's yeah, so yeah. much you can do. There's so much you could do, and there's so much they they have to explore. And Rex can still be a big part of that. Ah, uh, he's. I mean, he he's such a such a witness to so many things that happen and I, I don't know why they don't use that as a narrative vehicle to to bring things together i mean then you could use him to help luke maybe understand more about what jedi were like before the fall i mean he could Rex also knew Obi-Wan. He knew Obi-Wan before the fall. So he could say, yeah, this is what Obi-Wan was like. And this is why I liked your dad more than Obi-Wan. Because your dad wasn't a dogmatic prick. <laughs> like yeah. Obi-Wan. And so if you're still upset about Obi-Wan telling you this from a certain point of view, well, you can tell Ghost Force Obi-Wan to shove it up his butt. Because Anakin would have never done that. <laughs> yeah, that's... Fantastic stuff there, man. They, and I, I, I can only hope that it's it's things that are on the agenda to tell one day. Uh, but maybe it's maybe this is a Dave Filoni story to tell, and he's wrapped up with so many other things right now that perhaps he's preoccupied, and he'll just he'll get to it some other day when we're sorely missing these characters, this era, and it's time to dust off the Skywalkers and start telling these stories. And they bring Filoni in uh, off whatever he's doing and. 
he he settles back into that old comfort zone of Rex and Ahsoka mm-hmm. and Anakin and all that stuff and tells us those stories. But uh, that is for another day. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good place to sort of end this this worthy of recognition, man. This was a great episode. We got deep onto a couple of characters here. Uh, I loved hearing your story, Dave. And uh, I, I got to thank you so much for for taking time out. I know it's getting pretty late for you there. Uh, but yeah, I, I hope the whiskey was a good was a good company for you there. Oh, it was it was good, and I had my uh start one of my Seven Eleven Star Wars cups from when they did all these special promos at Force Awakens. So it's got all these Jedi lightsabers on it. Actually, I have Yoda, Dooku, Obi Wan, Anakin, Vader, a bunch of them on there. So yeah, I just drank the last sip out of it. So yeah, it kept me company. Perfect. So that's that's a great time to end the podcast. So, uh, Dave, where can people find you? Either your blog, uh, on Twitter. Where can you be found? Okay, on Twitter, my Twitter thing is I'll spell it out because it's probably hard to catch if I say it. It's um at Norsk Akiruno. So N O R S K. A-K-I-R-U-N-O. Norsk is for Norwegian because that's my heritage. All the Viking blood that decided to leave Norway and go to America in the late 1800s. And then Akiruno is the name of the city in Western Tokyo where I live, which really doesn't feel like Tokyo. It's a pretty um, verdant place with a nice, beautiful river. Um, I also... As I talked about, I do a bilingual blog um, that is Akiruno Life at Hatena Blog. Um, if you find me on Twitter, I have a link to the blog in my profile, so you can check it out there. Um, most of the stuff I write is focused on like Star Wars and... Japanese influences that I see in Star Wars, but I also do um, more Japanese um, history stuff. Uh, Right now, my little summer project that I've given myself is uh, translating this interview between Hayao Miyazaki um, and a Japanese historical fiction writer where they talk about the film The Wind Rises, which is about the man who designed the Mitsubishi Zero Fighter and World War II and use it as a, it's a really great dialogue about pre-World War II Japan, World War II era Japan. And uh, that's uh, where you can find me online. So if you're interested in that stuff, check it out. It's, it's really fascinating stuff there. I, I, I will vouch for that content, Dave. Uh, but thank you so much, Dave, for taking time out on, on a weekend to join me here. Uh, I, I hope people love your story. I know I did. It's 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 been fascinating to hear. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we'll be back again in no, in short order with another episode of Worthy of Recognition. Uh, so that's it, everybody. Have an amazing weekend, an amazing week, and we will talk to you again soon. May the Force be with you. <laughs>